Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So the president called Bette Midler a washed up psycho in a tweet. I mean, Bette Midler's a lot of things, but I don't think she's washed up. Yeah. Not at all. And I just want to say that all I could think of when I read that was that that scene from Ruthless People. A Ruthless oh. People. They're, oh, yeah. I've been kidnapped by k <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That whole movie revolves around yeah, her. Her being a washed and, up psycho. And, and she is so fabulous. She's good. And that movie is, is so much greater than anything. All the sum of Donald Trump is her performance in, in that movie. Um, that is a great film. Any other great Bette Midler films people love? I actually – I'm just waiting for her to incorporate Washed Up Psycho into her next stage show oh, because yeah. you know she's going to do it beautifully. She can number. wash up in the mermaid tail <laughs> in the psycho shower. It's a very rich area. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she should really thank him and give him royalties. Can we just talk about how weird the president of the United States is Don't as a do person? That. Don't we do that every week? <laughs> Bette Midler? Also, who doesn't love Bette Midler, okay? Seriously, I think he does too. I think he must. That's why he was upset that she poked him. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Washed Up Psycho edition. I'm Shane Harris. It should be Washed Up Psychos. We're all here. Yep. All four psychos are here in the jungle studio. I'm Shane Harris, washed up psycho. (laughs) (laughs) From now on, I think that'd be good. I can put that on my Twitter handle. I like to think of us as currently relevant psychos. That's true. We haven't really washed up. We're not quite washed up or washed out. Um, But we all are here in the jungle studio. I'm here with uh, Tamara Coffin, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Washed up psychos all. Yes. (laughs) It's so great to be back. Tammy have washed up after their travel abroad. The washed psychos is a good name for a band. It's a very good name for a band. It's hold that thought for later in the episode. <laughs> I might need to do a little twist on it between now and the end of the podcast. I bet it's taken. I bet Bill Barr has already claimed it for himself. Uh, we were not here last week, so we got a lot to catch up on. Uh, this week on the podcast, Robert Mueller speaks. What does it mean for the future of investigations and possible impeachment hearings? Bill Barr has given new authorities to declassify information about the Russia probe. And Jerry Kushner, you remember him, says he finally has a plan for the Middle East. Finally has the Middle East peace plan, you guys. He's going to fix it, guys. It's ready to go. It's a little late. Just got to do some formatting, some page numbers. I'm going right. to get it right to you. Yep. Yep. It would be great if there were an Israeli government, though, <laughs> <laughs> to receive it. A bunch of washed up psychos, all of them. Uh, let's start with uh, Mueller's statement, which uh, I guess was now a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but it's still the reverberations are being felt, I think. Uh, not a ton of surprises in his remarks. This uh, about 10 or so minute press conference that he gave at DOJ headquarters. Not really a press conference so much. He didn't take any questions. Uh, he didn't say much that wasn't in the report. He made it clear that if he does testify and he does not seem to want to, he will not go beyond what's in the report. But people are reading his comments like some kind of coded message, I think. So, Ben, what is the message that we should be taking away from this 10, 11-minute statement that Bob Mueller gave? So I don't think the message is very coded at all, actually. What Bob Mueller is saying 
is a he doesn't want to say more than was in the report he considers that to be the output of his office and the only uh, factual contribution he has to make to the conversation b that he considers what to do with that information to be the province of other people, i.e. Congress, to determine, not his job to determine, and he doesn't want to serve as an advisor or kind of eminence grease in that capacity. Number three, that he continues to refuse to clear the president of obstruction, whether one regards that as you know, a, a, an appropriate thing for him to say or not is a contested question. But it's clear that he's not going to give the president the clean bill of health, which, you know, Bill Barr uh, turned around and did for him. But Mueller reiterated that he's not playing that game. He's not doing that. Um, and number four, he continues to emphasize that the report's findings from his point of view are really important and that people should actually care. Uh, and on one issue— And read the report. Read the report. Which kind of was the big message. That was the read big Read the theme, message. Right? Read the report. And he ended his press conference, I don't have the text in front of me, by saying, by the way, I just want to emphasize that the substance of this activity, that is the Russian activity, is super important and people should care about it. And I think the broader message there is you should care about what I put in there. And I think when you put all those four things together, uh, what you get is— don't ask me to do your job for you. I put super important stuff on the public record, and now it is your job to figure out what to do about it. And and, and the you in that sentence is Congress. The, the, well, the you is Congress in the first instance and the American people more generally, uh, the sort of body politic uh, more generally. And I, I think – you know, everybody's looking for coded messages. I think the uncoded message is is pretty substantial. You know, it reminds me of that joke about Jewish law that has, you know, Moses up on Mount Sinai receiving the Torah from God. And God says, as it says in the Torah, thou shalt not cook a kid in its mother's milk. And Moses then infers all these rules, which Jews today abide by of having separate dishes with meat and milk. And, and God keeps saying, no, I said you should not cook a kid in its mother's milk. And at the end of the joke, God sort of gives up and says, OK, whatever you want. And I feel like, you know, Mueller said, here's what it said in my report. I'm going to repeat it for you again. And we're all trying to interpret it um, in the way that, that Ben just suggested. And what he fundamentally did by coming out and speaking these words out of his own mouth is clarified his intent. And I still think that was useful because there was so much confusion largely created by Attorney General Barr about what his intent was. And a lot of people have been inferring his intent. And so he clarified his intent. And in clarifying his intent, he also clarified the way in which the Attorney General overrode his intent. And so, you know, if nothing else, to me, that's the takeaway. So I agree that this was clarifying as to his intent. I do think it's worth noting, though, one, it, it ultimately isn't really up to him, right? The idea of whether or not he's going to testify, you know, in theory is one for Congress and Rob, not Robert Mueller to personally decide. Clearly, he's saying he didn't want to. He didn't think he needed to and that the report speaks for itself. 
The problem is that that's not totally true, right? The idea that this is a 450-page, incredibly dense, complex legal document for which there is no further questions to be asked. It's crystal clear every single part of this. That just on its face doesn't make any sense. Of course there are questions about what did you mean by this? Can you clarify this? How does this fact interplay with this fact, right? And so I think sort of as a threshold matter, like his assertion that, you know, he'd he'd put out this report that stood on its own terms and there was no more questions to be asked about it. We've been doing nothing but asking, you know, sincere good faith questions about this report for the past two months, essentially. You know, so a little bit, I think that was uh, that was a punt. And, and honestly, uh, I don't think that ends the calculus for Congress at all, because there is clearly Mueller was saying, I'm not going to go beyond the report. That is important, right? He's like, I'm not going to ride in and accuse the president, uh, you know, under oath or, you know, in front of Congress, but in a way that I didn't in the report. So I think that is um, helpful to sort of set expectations. I actually still think it would be immensely valuable to have Robert Mueller come in and actually just talk about the report. I think the fact that nine minutes of him speaking generated this much sort of attention and focus and examination appears to sort of pierce through the conservative media bubble is a real illustration of how important that is. You know, he also said some sort of important stuff that really made me think, man, this could have been different from the outset. So he says that they were bound by the OLC memo that they can't indict a sitting president from the beginning. And he says that there was it was never an option for them to have charged the president, right? From the get-go, they were never going to accuse the president of the crime. Now, if two years ago, Robert Mueller had made a statement saying, look, we're going to investigate this, we're going to investigate the Russian investigation, we're going to investigate any elements that might touch on the president, by the way... The OLC guidance means that we can't indict a president and, the, and therefore we can't accuse a president of a crime. So just just letting you guys know the framing and coverage, the way we would have thought about what sort of the fundamental task was, the way the public would have would have grappled with the important questions would have been completely different. And so a little bit I have a little bit of a question mark of. Really? From the absolute beginning, you knew you weren't coming down this path? Or was it more that you reached a point where you realized, oh, man, we have a mountain of evidence that's seriously problematic for the president. Now we don't want to do an act. We don't want to charge him with anything. Therefore, we aren't even going to accuse him. You know, because if you if you always knew that that was what was happening, why wouldn't you have at least nudged the press in that direction? And I know, Shane, maybe you can speak to whether or not there were nudges behind the scenes, but certainly there was no indication sort of in press coverage of that. There were no nudges at all of any kind. But yeah, Ben. Yeah. So I actually think that Mueller, I want to defend him on this point because I think there was a lot of wishful thinking on the part of a lot of people in the press, a lot of people in the intelligentsia in general. And uh, there were there were two major public statements that the president can't be indicted that we always knew bound Robert Mueller. One was made in 1973 by OLC, by Mr. D- uh, Professor Dixon. The other was made by Randy Moss in 2000 uh, and is you know, a substantial 20-page memo. And anybody who didn't understand that the Justice Department had a view of the constitutional law of this and it bound Robert Mueller through the regs, which said he's bound by, by Justice Department policy – was engaged in wishful thinking. And I have no doubt that there are a lot of people who were. I want to stress that whenever you wrote about it, whenever I wrote about it, we always 
like we always knew what the law was. And that's so, different than but, what but she's saying. But hold on, that's not what I'm saying. I I never thought DOJ was going to charge the president, and I thought that they were pretty clear. And actually, I do believe that they made a statement saying that, or, or at least Mueller made a statement to Trump's lawyers that appeared in the press, in which they said we were bound by this memo. But this this interpretation by which not being able to charge a president, they were not able under fairness considerations to even accuse him of a crime. I think that is – it would have been different had they said that from the outset. Now, we've been talking for a long time about sort of the, you know, the Watergate roadmap model where you just lay out, you know, sort of the evidence and say, hey, over to you, Congress, versus the star model where you actually lean forward on the legal uh, – on making sort of a legal accusation against the president. But I do think that there was – a reasonable expectation that if Robert Mueller found, I don't know, the kind of evidence that actually exists in the Mueller report that describes, you know, the president engaging in conduct that meets all elements of, uh, of a statutory offense of, of obstruction of justice, that he would have been clearer about that or at, at a very minimum wouldn't have done the, well, if we could have cleared him, we would have cleared him, but we can't clear him, so we can't go down that road. That is sort of – that's a novel thing and, and it would have been different how we understood it from the outset. Yeah, so I, I – sorry, I misunderstood you. I have no doubt that his position here on that point is unusual and and it may be you know, right or wrong. It's certainly distinctive. I also think almost nothing turns on it. You know, Congress has all the information it needs to make the decisions before it. And what's holding Congress back is not Robert Mueller having said the words or not having said the words, the president committed a crime. What's holding Congress back is A, the vote head count in the Senate, and B, the vote head count in the form of the polls, neither of which favor moving forward with impeachment. And as a result, a certain hesitation about the kamikaze mission that they understand impeachment to be. Now, you have argued, and I actually tend to agree with you, that they should kind of do it anyway, although I'm less certain of it than you are, but I largely agree with you. Um, But I don't think any part of that analysis is materially different if if Mueller had spoken the words obstruction of justice than if, say, Justin Amash speaks it for him. And I, I really – I think, you know, I also agree with you that it would be hugely significant if Robert Mueller would merely go no further than is in his report in the form of live congressional testimony because that would be dramatic and interesting and, and would grab a lot of attention. But I think it is far more important for Congress to be hearing from the underlying fact witnesses that, whose testimony and interviews constituted the Mueller report rather than from Mueller kind of reading his own conclusions. So I agree with most of that except for I completely disagree that anything – that nothing would turn on Robert Mueller saying the president of the United States you know, has, has committed a crime or, or sort of going a step further in the accusation. I, I think things would be dramatically different had he decided to do so. And I do think – right. so the, one of the elements of the press conference with, that was interesting is that Mueller actually says one part of the opinion that guided our thinking um, in terms of how to – whether or not to make this accusation 
was, quote, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing, end quote. So that's him saying impeachment, right? One of the reasons why Formally accused being the key word there. Exactly. So one of the reasons why we didn't level that accusation was because, hey, guys, there's this other remedy. And so I think you're exactly right that what he's doing is trying to sort of drop this, you know, with a thud in Congress and say, hey, guys, pick this up. The problem is, is that Robert Mueller is the only person really playing by the rules here, right? He's being incredibly scrupulous about, well, I, you know, I collected my report and I can't charge and not being able to charge. I'm not even going to make the accusation and I'm going to be really, really careful and, and try and sort of interpret the regu- DOJ regulations as scrupulously and fairly as I can. And and I think that uh, under that thinking, you can, you can understand how he reached all the decisions he did, although I, I think there are other ways he could have thought about it as well. The problem is no one else is playing by the rules. No one else is engaging in reasonable good faith. And so what he did was, by being extra, extra fair, created the opening for Republicans to stick their fingers in the ears and say, la, 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 we no crimes, no collusion, nothing, no conspiracy. And so this was an entirely predictable outcome. And so it was a little strange to see him so, I don't know, befuddled in this press conference. Like, dude, what did you think was going to happen? So, I mean, befuddled is an interesting word. I would say that there there is an extreme discipline and, as you noted, extreme self-restraint. But that is because he's in a unique position in this constellation of institutions and actors in what is just suffused with politics, inherently so. Impeachment itself, as we've discussed, is a political judgment. It's not a neutral legal objective judgment. And so the role that he was given to play as special counsel was a role that was intentionally distanced from the politics so that he could make a set of more objective assessments, fact-finding, and judgments. And to me, that's precisely the value of having him speak through a microphone to the public. That's the value of having him come testify before Congress, not because it's going to get a lot of attention, not because he's going to have some quotation, which is the smoking gun moment that suddenly clarifies everything for everybody and turns the tide, but simply because in this incredibly polarized era in which everyone is interpreting what they want through their own political lens, he's the only voice who, when he speaks, even those who you know would like to stick their fingers in their ears can't ignore it. They have to somehow respond to it. And so I think as a matter of the public interest and the public service that he took on as special counsel, I would argue there's a certain responsibility to continue that in speaking before Congress. Again, as Ben said, even if he doesn't go beyond what's already in the report. And that would be, to me, sufficient recognition of the uniqueness of this moment and how awful everything is if we just have this one person who was given the task of being the neutral speaker of facts to continue speaking facts. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, Susan, that it would have been different had he come out guns blazing and said the president obstructed justice. I can't indict him for it, but he obstructed justice. But I don't think it would be very different. And the reason is that Bill Barr would still would have overruled him since Bill Barr takes the position that, in fact, the president 
can't obstruct justice in his uh, facially valid uh, Article II acts as president. And so it still would have presented as the Justice Department ultimately does not indict uh, and finds that he didn't. And I don't believe that the reaction of the Lindsey Grahams and Chuck Grassley's and John Cornyn's of the world would have been, oh my God, how outrageous of the attorney general to have overruled the special counsel on this finding. I don't believe that would have been their reaction. I would have been, believe their reaction would have been the attorney general found no obstruction and they all found no collusion. So no obstruction, no collusion. And so, yeah, it would have been optically kind of different. But I actually think the fundamental dynamics of it would have been weirdly similar to what they are now. And the, the fundamental problem is that, you know, Republicans in the Senate and, and in the House as well don't want to take the facts that Mueller is reporting separate, uh, seriously. And it doesn't matter deeply if you call those facts obstruction or if you call those facts not being able to clear the president. If you don't take them seriously, it's not going to lead you anywhere. So just as we close one investigation, we're opening another. Uh, we've talked on the podcast before about the investigating the investigators uh, that Bill Barr has called for and now is in charge of. Are uh, you saying we've already investigated the investigation of the investigators? I don't think we've – I don't think – well, I think we're in the midst of the investigation of the investigators. Uh, there may be an investigation of the investigators. I think we're in the, the midst of the investigation of the investigators' of the investigation. Okay. Well, we're going to now investigate the investigation of the investigation. Oh, thank goodness. Yes. So that's clear. Uh, so late last month, the president signed an executive order giving Bill Barr and only Bill Barr, not just the attorney general, but this attorney general, the authority to declassify information related to his investigation of the origins of the Russia probe. Uh, Barr, of course, has said that there was spying on the Trump campaign. That's the word he has used. That's not a bad word. It's a good English word. Yeah. That's what he said. That's right. Uh, and he wants I'm to spying at you right now with my eyes, Tim. <laughs> I spy, with I my, spy with my <laughs> An executive order. Uh, he wants to find out if the investigation was illegal or improper. Uh, in an interview with CBS News last week, Barr talked about the danger from an elite group of government officials who think they know best what the country needs. And I want to quote from this because I think it speaks actually to what Barr is worried or suspects may have happened with the Russia probe and its origins. Quote, Republics have fallen because of Praetorian Guard mentality where government officials get very arrogant. They identify the national interest with their own political preferences and they feel that anyone who has a different opinion is somehow an enemy of the state. Is he looking in the mirror? <laughs> I'm just reading here. There is that tendency that they know better and that they're going to protect as guardians of the people that can easily translate into essentially supervening the will of the majority and getting your own way as a government official. Uh, so oh, Susan, brother. <laughs> <laughs> it seems very clear here that Barr, at least to me anyway, uh, is talking about Jim Comey, about other DOJ officials. We should also view this in light of other things he said about the investigation and is worried that it has some kind of corrupt origin. And I think we could probably lump into this Jim Clapper, John Brennan, other people who figured not necessarily in the investigation of the campaign, but in the whole apparatus of the intelligence community being geared towards trying to figure out what Russia was up to. I just want to say, Shane, you should use these men – Actual title that's washed up psycho Jim. Washed Comey. up psycho Jim washed Comey. Up psycho Andy McKay. Yeah. Washed up psycho Jim Clapper, Jim Clapper, who was washed up long before he washed up again. <laughs> um, 
So, Susan, my question is, do you think Barr is genuinely trying to determine if there was wrongdoing in the opening of this probe or is this his assault on what he thinks of as the deep state that was out to get Donald Trump and prevent him from becoming president? I mean, like, I'm sure that Bill Barr is telling himself a story in his head by which this is all fine and fair and legitimate. Um, I think this is a really, really disturbing development. And And disturbing because of the power that he has to declassify information. Yeah, that this this executive order giving Barr the declassification authority, that that is a a disturbing development. And so we talked early a few weeks ago on the podcast whenever this was just the first sort of announced that, you know, John Durham was going to take over this, uh, you know, do this new inquiry. Inquiry, but it wasn't a criminal probe, but it's some kind of procedures review. And, uh, you know, I at the time, you know, sort of said, look, maybe there's a like an innocent explanation here that really they're talking about creating some kind of procedures for next time. And this isn't about launching an investigation to what happened in the ab- and to suggest wrongdoing in the absence of a criminal predicate. But it's pretty clearly where we are. If, if there was a belief that there was criminal wrongdoing, we already have an IG investigation going on to get the basic facts. If there was belief that there was criminal wrongdoing. I, there's no there's no chance that Bill Barr would not be launching a criminal investigation into it. And so the mere fact that they aren't launching a criminal investigation, I think is a pretty good illustration that what's happening here is he wants to look into something, uh, you know, and, and create the appearance of an investigation and, and in circumstances in which there there actually isn't uh, enough information to suggest the, that there was a predicate that there's a predicate for wrongdoing. So I think we're already in a world that's sort of disturbing. On top of that, we now have this executive order that's moving uh, sort of the declassification authority, essentially away from the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, and to the attorney general. Now, the president of the United States has the ultimate declassification authority, so he could always intervene to classify or declassify whatever he wanted. There is an existing process of an interagency review process when somebody wants to declassify that goes essentially through the DNI, uh, and it's sort of it's it's essentially driven by the agency that owns the information, so the agency whose sources have produced that information, right, to sort of deconflict. So now Trump is reaching down and moving that from Dan Coats to Bill Barr. So the question Dan is... Dan Coats, who he does not have a good relationship who with. Who he doesn't like, um, but is his own political appointee into Bill Barr. So now the question is, why? Why would you give the declassification authority to the attorney general for the subject matter of this investigation? So let's take a step back and talk about why information is classified in the first instance. Information is classified whenever there is a belief that it will cause a particular type of harm, right, grave harm, serious harm, I don't know how they decide between the two, to to the national security of the United States. You aren't allowed to classify stuff because it's embarrassing or you don't want it to come out or or you don't want other agencies to be able to look at it or congressional staffers to be able to see it. Although let's be fair, that that kind of classification has been going on for decades. Absolutely, there is an overclassification issue. Although I would I would argue that it's actually not driven by by an intention of wanting to hide embarrassing information, but but lots of other. It's more uh, like everyone's way overcautious. Exactly, just sort of the incentives yeah. all uh, you know the, the incentives. Uh, there's nothing bad will happen if you overclassify. Something bad might happen if you underclassify. But but look, the basic reason why you're supposed to be able to classify this information in the first instance is national security purposes. The same thing is true for declassification. You are supposed to be if you are supposed to be declassifying information only because you have determined that it will ca- not cause this very serious harm to U.S. national security, and so by putting this in Bill Barr, 
You're saying that the person who is best able to determine whether or not there is legitimate risk to U.S. national security by the release of this information is not the director of national intelligence that actually sits and oversees all these agencies, but instead the attorney general who's out in some, right, who, who's sort of a satellite actor. And so that to me suggests that once again, we are looking at a president who is overseeing a process that treats both the classification and the declassification of information as being motivated by something other than harm to national security from disclosure. We are already in seriously bad territory if that's the case. You know, then I think we have to ask, OK, should we really be afraid of Bill Barr having this this authority, right? Is Bill Barr what? He's going to tweet out the names of undercover CIA operatives and get people killed and this and that? No, right? This isn't uh, – I don't think that we have to presume some sort of evil intent on the part of Bill Barr to say that the only reason to give him this – to give him this authority is – so that declassification decisions can be driven and colored by the equities that he cares about in this investigation, an investigation for which there's already good reason to sort of question his judgment and good faith. And so, you know, I, I think it will be it will be interesting to see what the other agencies have to say. I will give one more Maybe this is the most innocent explanation I can come up with, and that's that John Durham has a long history of uh, doing these kinds of internal investigations. It is plausible to me that if Bill Barr had asked him, hey, what was the major stumbling blocks for you in the past, he said the classified information, because of course it's not just about declassification for public release. It's also about the way information is compartmented, you know, whose staff can see what. Uh, you know, in the past, certainly, you know, whenever he was investigating the, the um, destruction of the CIA interrogation tapes, um, there were accusations that the CIA was using particular forms of classification, certain forms of compartment, to basically make it really hard for investigators to get at that information. And so I, I, I guess you could plausibly say that maybe this is basically saying we're not going to allow any other agencies to play games with this information. And so this isn't really about declassification in the terms of in terms of publication. You know, but the other thing that I think this gives really big alarm bells on is the ability to declassify information is also the or downgrade classification is also the ability to get information to Congress generally. And once information is given, particularly to Republicans on uh, on the House Intelligence Committee right now, that is as good as declassifying it. And so I do think we have to be really alarmed about a world in which DOJ tells itself under Bill Barr that it's acting completely kosher by just downgrading intelligence. They aren't trying to make it public in order to get it to members of Congress. The reason why it is given extra, uh, you know, a different form of classification is to prevent exactly the kinds of disclosures in forums uh, that could lead to to actual public disclosure. And I want to get back <clears throat> to this idea, though, of what else, too, is, you know, Bill Barr's view of the world that might be a motivating factor in this as well. And, you know, we've talked about the, the interview we gave with CBS News and this Praetorian Guard. I want to read actually from an oral history that he gave in, to the University of Virginia in 2001, which is, by the way, it's worth reading. It's quite long. 
Um, but there's a specifically a passage that I think is relevant I'm going to quote from. Uh, he's talking about his experience with the political establishment, people who run agencies, and then the career class of people. He says, my experience with the, de- with the Department of Justice is that the most political people in the department are the career people. The least political are the political appointees. That's an overstatement to dramatize a point. But I found that a lot of the career people, when I got pressing them on something, would start giving me political calculus. And I would say, that's not your job. I don't want your political advice. I don't want you to start bringing in political considerations. And he goes on, I've come to feel that political supervision of the department is very important. Politically responsible people, someone ultimately has to answer to the political process. I think the thing is being driven in the opposite way. He goes on a lot in the oral history about this. And what I take from this is that Bill Barr has a a longstanding and deep suspicion of people in career age, career people in agencies who he thinks are dug in and believe that they're the ones who are really manning the ship. And if you don't like the political leadership, hunker down, slow roll, do whatever you have to do. Presidents come and go every four years. I mean, to me, that's that's it's an it's an interesting thought of the, if, if that's the way that Bill Barr is approaching his investigation of the Russia probe. He knows that the people who are initiating and running that probe are the very kinds of people who he's talking about here in 2001 as being quite suspicious of and feeling like they know what's best. And I mean, I'm not trying to say he's prejudging the outcome of this investigation, but it does seem to me that he approaches it with a pretty strong view of what career people can do if they are not reined in by political leadership. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Susan laid out a quite well thought through and a granular set of concerns about a bar. Mine are simpler and higher altitude, and they are closely related to exactly that point. Uh, They are the following. Number one, the president has said exactly what this investigation is for in his eyes, which is to go after the people who went after him. And he's made that clear, not just with respect to the individuals in the FBI and CIA that uh, he thinks targeted him, i.e. Brennan, Comey, McCabe, Pete Strzok, you know, but with respect to, as he put it, the British and the Australians. And he wants to target our, target all the people and intelligence agencies that he feels aggrieved by in the context of the Russia investigation. Bill Barr may or may not share that overt. I agree with Susan. He's probably telling himself a very different story about his motivations. But he has, as you describe, an overtly biased set of preconceptions about the way both the FBI and the CIA behaved here. And he is not subtle about it in that interview. He talks about how People have this Praetorian Guard mentality. He, he really talks about a kind of – he doesn't use the word conspiracy, but uh, a targeting of the Trump campaign for political reasons using intelligence authorities. He does not provide any evidence of that, but that is his working investigative hypothesis and he is uh, you know, quite clear about that. Number three, and this is to me – the most shocking aspect of the interview, and it's gotten very little discussion, is the last paragraph of the interview where he addresses the question of how concerned he is about Donald Trump's abuse of institutions. And I don't have it in front of me, but what he says is, you know, I haven't seen it. 
I'm not really concerned about it because, you know, everyone says the president is attacking institutions and uh, harming institutions. Uh, but in fact, I haven't seen any of that. And so this is, by the way, from the same attorney general who could not answer Kamala Harris's question about whether the president had personally asked him to investigate the president's political enemies. And so uh, when you put those three things together, which is the president is overt in his targeting of his enemies and allied intelligence services in his ambitions for this investigation, B, that Barr clearly displays whether he's as corrupt as Trump's account is or, or whether he's just kind of, uh, you know, for his own reasons, he clearly displays a conspiratorial mindset with respect to what he's investigating. And three, that yet when he looks at Trump, he does not see the abuse of institutions. I ask myself the question, is this somebody who should be in charge of the unilateral declassification of whatever he thinks is relevant to proving his point. And I think that same that question tends to answer itself. I think this last point is really important of this last paragraph, and I do think it's worth saying what the language was. So Barr says, quote, I think one of the ironies today is that people are saying that, that it's President Trump that's shredding our institutions. I really see no evidence of that. It is hard, and I really haven't seen a bill of particulars as to how that's being done. From my perspective, the idea of resisting a democratically elected president, basically throwing everything at him, and, you know, really changing the norms on the ground, that we have to stop this president, that is where the shredding of our norms and our institutions is occurring. Right. And so I think when you have a president who says, go after my political enemies, and you as the attorney general can turn around and the, the president isn't being subtle about that. It's not like, a, you know, it's, it's not like even a dog whistle. He says, I hope they go after the Australians. I hope they go after the British. And these people and I'm going to name are guilty of treason. Right. These people I'm going to name are guilty of treason. And you look at that and say the problem is not, you know, the, I don't see the bill of particulars where the president is, is attacking institutions. That is a profound, uh, I don't know, I, you know, once not too long ago thought pretty highly of Bill Barr, I experienced some real cognitive dissonance uh, with that part of the interview, with the whole interview, actually. All right. Speaking of cognitive dissonance, uh, Jerry Kushner, finally here with that Middle East peace plan. Yeah, He's done whole, it, guys. He's done it. <laughs> the whole concept of Jared Kushner in charge of Middle East peace is still so full of cognitive dissonance. Uh, so Politico actually wrote this week, uh, quoting here, prominent conservative and pro-Israel voices close to the White House are increasingly sharing their fears, which range from the possibility that the peace proposal could trigger violence to worries that its offerings could forever kill efforts to craft a two-state solution. That doesn't sound like a great peace plan. Uh, and my colleague John Hudson of The Washington Post this week had leaked audio from a talk by Mike Pompeo where he seemed to be pretty pessimistic about the peace plan's chances. Uh, so, Tammy, you and Ben are just back from a trip to Israel. I want to know how you think this plan is being greeted there and by others in the region. And, you know, what are its chances? People here seem pretty down on it. How do they feel on the ground, as it were? So first of all, this is a plan that has been anticipated pretty much since day one of the administration. Jared Kushner was tasked with this very early on. Jason Greenblatt, the president's former 
bankruptcy lawyer was tasked with being the Middle East peace envoy. And basically, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this thing to come out. It was going to come out in December of 2017. And then they decided to move the embassy to Jerusalem. And it wasn't the right time. And then last year, you know, they kept saying, well, it's almost ready. Apparently, they were going to release it at the end of last year. And then uh, Netanyahu called Israeli elections, and they decided to wait and hold it for after the Israeli elections. And then this past week, while Ben and I were in Jerusalem, it was a very, very exciting week because Netanyahu faced the deadline to form his parliamentary coalition to begin his fifth term as prime minister and failed to form a coalition. So Israel's now headed to new snap elections um, scheduled for September 17th. And therefore, the assumption is that that long-awaited Jared Kushner peace plan, which has just been sitting in a drawer ready to get dusted off as soon as the Israeli elections are over, that it's going to get delayed once again. Here's what we know. We know that Kushner has announced that the economic portion of his plan is going to be released separately before the political portion, which is, of course, the part that resolves the conflict. But there are being disruptors here. Yeah, they're being disruptors. No way of thinking. uh, We'll come back to that in a moment. So they're holding – they are supposed to be holding a workshop in Bahrain uh, in just two weeks at the end of June, convening Arab governments and the Israelis and others to release this economic plan and ideally to get these guys all on board. And now they're doing it with no expectation that the political plan is coming anytime soon. In that context, Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt were in the region drumming up support uh, for their Bahrain economic conference at the very moment that Netanyahu failed to form a government. Um, So one can just imagine what those meetings were like. And the question now is, will we ever see the Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt Middle East peace plan? I will say that over the last couple of months, as they've been trying to drum up interest in their economic uh, conference in Bahrain, they've also started lowering expectations, which tells me that the messages they're getting back Even from close partners like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the UAE, the messages they're getting back are, we're not really on board with this. So now the Bahrain conference is a workshop and no decisions will be made at it, so we're told. And I think there has always been, if we're honest, a question about the political portion of the plan, in other words, the meat of the peace plan, um, which is – If it's not going to explicitly um, talk about basic Palestinian requirements in a final status agreement like statehood and a capital in East Jerusalem uh, and some way of dealing with the refugee problem, then it's going nowhere. If it is going to address those in any meaningful way, even if it's not to the Palestinian satisfaction, it's going to alienate part of Prime Minister Netanyahu's right-wing base, but more importantly, part of President Trump's evangelical base. And so I've always had a question about whether President Trump is going to be willing at the end of the day to pay any domestic political price to put out a plan that could be seen as credible. So I've seen two possibilities. And a plan that's not credible, that's dead on arrival, or no plan. And the longer, the more time ticks by, the closer we get to the 2020 election campaign, I bet the sharper eye the White House has on its evangelical constituency. 
So now that the Israeli elections have delayed this thing again, I'm going to make a prediction right now. Unless Netanyahu manages to form a government immediately after those elections, we may never see the Trump peace plan. You'll never even see it. I don't think they'll release it. I think that they'll probably decide, why should we release a plan that's going to alienate evangelical voters as we're running into the 2020 campaign? Can I ask this before, Susan, maybe this respects something you were going to say too is – I mean, even it's like going back to like to even like an eighty thousand foot level. I mean, I sometimes can't tell whether or not Jared Kushner is genuinely engaged in an effort to try and come up with some novel or perhaps new spin on an old solution to try and put forward a plan, or if frankly this is just a lot of busy work and that this is all just smoke and mirrors. I mean, is there? I mean, it sounds like what you're describing that there is a substantive effort here to try and do something, but uh, you know, and color me skeptical because I think you know. So many peace plans have fallen apart and in the time I've spent in Israel, I don't sense any great reservoir of will right now or, or um, politically. On the Israeli uh, side or the, or the Palestinian, Palestinian side. side. So I don't know what we think that we can do. But I've always been puzzled as to whether or not this is a real effort or if this is something that the White House is claiming Kushner is doing when he really isn't. Yeah. I mean, my question is sort of related to that. And that's that. So <clears throat> we have you know Mike Pompeo calling the plan unexecutable. You know, from the beginning, we've talked about this weird sort of Jared go-it-alone model, right, where this is sort of taken out of the State Department and sort of the ordinary diplomatic channels. If this falls apart, does Pompeo reassert the State Department sort of role in this? Has he articulated any kind of vision or is it really Jared gets this done or it just sits on ice until there's a new American president? Well, I think what we heard from Pompeo's interview or his surreptitiously recorded with meeting with the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, what we hear is his skepticism. And that skepticism is well-grounded. I think everybody has skepticism and perhaps at this point, judging from the deliberately lowered expectations, maybe even Jared and Jason Greenblatt are skeptical of of the potential for success of their own plan. But they feel like the president made a commitment to it. He tasked his son-in-law with it. And so, by God, they're going to do it, check the box and move on. You know, that that may well be the play that is left to them. um, But it may also be that they're going to run out of time. The reason why you hear so many experts, including people who have been, you know, relatively more supportive of President Trump on certain Middle East policy issues, like my colleague Rob Satloff at the Washington Institute, who wrote an op-ed basically saying, please don't release this plan, is that, you know, while the environment on the ground and, and politics inside Israel and inside the Palestinian areas these are not conducive to peace negotiations. Um, there is building pressure on the ground uh, on the Israeli side uh, for certain types of unilateral action. And in his latest election campaign, Netanyahu even made a pledge that he would move forward with a bill to annex parts of the West Bank where there are major blocks of Israeli settlements. This would change the rules forever in terms of Arab-Israeli peacemaking And I think that there has been a fear in the expert community that the White House might be intending to release a plan knowing that its chances of gaining traction are almost nil because the rejection of that plan by the Palestinians and perhaps other Arab parties would give Netanyahu the excuse he needs to move forward with the annexation. So I know that some of my colleagues think the fix is in. 
And this is all meant to facilitate Israeli annexation of West Bank territory. I don't know that myself. I don't want to go that far. But I think that the data we see is consistent with that interpretation. Ben, the last time I was in Israel was on a trip with you. And one of the people we met with was someone who had been at the table for basically all of the negotiations over peace plans through many, many, many U.S. presidential administrations. And the distinct impression I got, and I think even said this explicitly, was that Israelis have had to learn to sort of smile and nod their heads as American comes th- Americans come through with their big ideas for peace between Israel and the Palestinians and not make the Americans feel bad because, yes, we've already thought of that. Um, and sort of this kind of exasperation that he seemed to sometimes feel. On your most recent trip, did you get the feeling that Israelis were – sort of more of the same? Or were they looking even more exasperated at Kushner? Or do they maybe regard him as somebody who is so far outside the box and uh, not to give him a backhanded compliment, but has so little experience in foreign policy that maybe he could actually achieve something where others had failed? So I don't think that anybody I've talked to on any side of this Palestinian, Israeli, non Palestinian Arab takes at face value the idea that Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt are going to put together a plan with a bunch of interesting new ideas that might actually shake things up and provide a real basis for discussion. I haven't heard anybody advance that without a big grin on uh, his or her face anywhere. Except, of course, people speaking uh, on behalf of the administration, right? That said, I do think there has been a real in, – in, in, in answer to your question earlier, I do think there has been a real process here that, you know, they went around and they talked to a lot of people and I think that really did happen. You know, they were in so-called listening mode for a while. They've met with quite a lot of people. Uh, both on the Israeli side and until the Palestinians cut them off on the Palestinian side. And so I think the best that I can – and you know, Tammy is in a better position to answer this than I am. My impression is that they think they're engaged in a real process. And it's just that there's very little relationship between that process and any outcome that's likely to hit – the ground with anything other than a thud or a splat. I think there's also a dynamic here that we see with a lot of international relationships with the Trump administration is that governments in the Middle East, like governments in Europe, like the Japanese and the South Koreans kind of came – when the Trump administration came in, they wanted to be congenial. They wanted to be obliging. And I think it's quite possible that Kushner has gone around and sort of talked a good game, including things like lots and lots of new money to help develop Jordan and Egypt and the Palestinian areas. And they've been willing to kind of give it a listening ear and and not say – not nitpick it and not criticize it publicly. 
But now it's coming to crunch time. And one of the things, A, it's coming to crunch time. B, I think they've been living with Trump long enough that they've also found themselves disappointed in a number of areas. And so they're less interested in being obliging now than they were at the beginning. And what's been interesting is just over the last few weeks, as Jared has been on the hard sell of getting people to come to Bahrain, we've seen a number of Arab governments firm up and harden their positions on Middle East peace. King Salman of Saudi Arabia held three back-to-back summits in Mecca last week and spoke very strongly about Palestine, about Jerusalem, about the need for Palestinian statehood. The Egyptian government, you know, again, very close to Washington, very good relationship with the Trump administration, came out and said, we're not going to support anything that the Palestinians don't want. Um, In other words, Mahmoud Abbas gets to decide whether Egypt is going to support this peace plan or not. Um, And the Jordanians, of course, are probably in the toughest position of all, and they've been relatively kind of discreet about their concerns. But it's notable that Kushner and Greenblatt stopped in Amman last week and issued a statement afterwards you know, saying essentially that we had a really important dialogue about the concerns of the Jordanians. In other words, we understand that people have issues here. And I think that, you know, all of a sudden they're getting a dose of reality about what the region can and can't handle. And so they may have had some very innovative pipe dreams about Arab-Israeli economic cooperation and a vision of open borders. And now, only now, maybe reality is beginning to hit. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Ben, do you want to share yours? It seems on point. Yeah. So my object lesson, the other day I uh, was at this conference in Jerusalem and I met afterwards with a Haaretz reporter who, to my surprise, Uh, wanted to interview me about the comparative abuse of law enforcement between Trump and Bibi Netanyahu. And, you know, the basic basic question was, uh, in what ways is who more dangerous for democracy in their interactions with their... It's rather tendentious framing. <laughs> well, I, I, I actually... It also just reminds me of that dialogue between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi in the first Star Wars movie where Darth Vader says, I am the teacher now. <laughs> uh, so Now I am the master. Yeah, so exactly. I, I, I found myself in this uh, comparative constitutional discussion with a Haaretz reporter over, over lunch in, in Jerusalem. And it actually turns out to be a really interesting and hard question, which executive in its interactions with law enforcement in these respective countries is stressing democratic norms more. And I think the answer that I came to over the course of this conversation and a subsequent email exchange is that uh, Bibi is actually stressing Israeli democracy more right now than Trump is stressing American democracy. I'm not certain I'm right about that. And look, on the one hand, one of these two men could fire an attorney general and fire the uh, investigative agency head in question, and that was not Bibi. On the other hand, you know, if Bibi had succeeded in putting a government together last week, one effect would have been an immediate uh, uh, immunity bill for him. He would have just changed the rules and he would have in- denuded the Israeli Supreme Court 
of its power of judicial review or at least given a legislative override to those, which is – these are two things that Trump you know, like could not – he already has immunity. But he could not denude the Supreme Court of, of judicial review authority. And so my object lesson is uh, this little Haaretz article and my mused, amused and bemused thoughts about, about comparative stress on, on democracy. Um, we will link to it on the show page. TLDR, it could be worse. You could be living in Israel. <laughs> uh, Tammy, what's your object? Okay. Well, first, Shane, I have to say thank you for correcting my miserable false quotation of Star Wars. I rely oh. on you for these things. Before I was but a pupil. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank You're you break Darth. You're going to break on your mics. Thank you, Darth. Um, so my object <laughs> is a brand spanking new Congressional Research Service report one of my favorite things that has happened in Washington the last few years where many, many things have gotten worse, the transparency of the Congressional Research Service has gotten better because they now publish all their reports and make them available to the public. And this morning, I got a new one in my inbox. Uh, very, very timely. U.S. arms sales to the Middle East. Trump administration uses emergency exception in the Arms Export Control Act which is um, an analysis of what the Trump administration did a couple of weeks ago where it blew through congressional holds on the delivery of weapons to Saudi Arabia and the UAE to fight their war in Yemen. Um, these are bipartisan holds. And Congress is now faced with a situation in which they feel once again that Trump has improperly used a designation of an emergency to override their congressional role. And so CRS very helpfully put together this study that talks about past presidential usage of the emergency authority in the Arms Export Control Act and ways in which Congress might respond. At the same time, this morning, a bunch of senators introduced 22 resolutions of disapproval, which is one step they can take to push back on this, to disapprove the, the president's use of the emergency authority for each of these 22 weapons deliveries to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. We'll see if they pass. Even if they pass, they'll probably get vetoed. It's going to get those arms deals one way or another. Billions uh, and billions. Billions and billions. Yeah, oh. this is stuff they already bought, actually. Uh, I'll do mine next. Uh, before I have my object, I have a recommendation, particularly for listeners of this podcast. If you have not seen it, run, do not walk to watch Chernobyl on HBO. Oh, yeah. This is, I mean, aside from being just extraordinary television, extraordinary writing, directing, acting, the production values of this thing are astonishing. It is, I've heard many, many people uh, online who grew up in Soviet Russia saying everything looks like Soviet Russia down to the light. Wow. It's really it's quite, quite, quite extraordinary reviews. Um, but it will be of particular interest for people who listen to the podcast, I think, both in terms of the global security crisis that the Chernobyl explosion caused. And I think I – mean, I, I was 10 when it happened. I have read about it subsequently but did not appreciate really the magnitude of what was going on at the moment. And there's a reason for a lot of that because the Communist Party and the Central Committee covered up so much of it and the show is a lot about that. Um, so people really appreciate that but also how this is a, an indictment of the Soviet Union but also an indictment and a warning about what happens when a government is built on lies. 
Uh, and there's a lot of uh, lessons. Don't overdraw them to the present moment, but there are things that we can learn from this. Anyway, podcast uh, listeners will love it. But my object is this new group out in national security, um, which is a group that's been formed uh, essentially to raise the profile and the visibility of LGBTI Americans working on national security and in the military. Wait a minute. Uh, are you objectifying LGBTI Americans in national security? Sure. <laughs> Look, I'm allowed. I have my card. It says okay. I can do that. Wait, okay? you're gay? Shh. My mother listens to this podcast. Edit that out. Uh, it is Pride Month, so uh, to uh, bring some attention to their group, they are out with a new uh, list that they call the 25 LGBTI Next Generation Leaders to Watch. Uh, obviously, a lot more than 25, but there's some 25 really interesting people that they've highlighted here in a post that we'll link to at the Atlantic Council. Uh, but this group was set up by three people who've worked in national security positions in government, um, Luke Schlissener, uh, Sean Skelly, and Rusty Pickens. Uh, and you can read all about their bios at outinnationalsecurity.org. You can follow them at outinnatsec. Uh, check it out. They're doing some really interesting things. And uh, it's important too, I think, to note that the intelligence community has specifically highlighted and recently in a hearing as well, diversity as being not just a nice to have, but a need to have, uh, particularly when it comes to intelligence analysis, because diversity of experience and their view and backgrounds leads to different approaches to solving problems. So there is a real national security value in that kind of diversity, according to your intelligence community. Way to go, guys. Susan. So my object lesson is a story in the New York Times that – I think falls in the category of would be a huge blockbuster getting a ton of attention in any other administration in any other period of time, but is getting essentially none. Um, and this is the story about Elaine Chow and her family. Um, it's called A Bridge to China and Her Family's Business in the Trump Cabinet. Um, and what it really talks about is uh, some pretty astounding ethical lapses uh, in terms of a cabinet secretary attempting uh, not just to champion her family's business ties with China, but actually attempting to include them in official government meetings, uh, the Department of Transportation really going out of its way in efforts to uh, obfuscate and mislead reporters about exactly what is going on. Uh, this is a period of time in which national security leaders are absolutely raising every possible alarm about attempts by the Chinese government to influence uh, the United States, United States decision makers. This is a really, really important issue. Um, the story is just absolutely stunning in terms of what's sort of occurring in plain sight. Uh, uh, they, The New York Times got a trove of about 1,300 emails that describes the planning of this trip to China. Uh, ultimately, the trip was canceled um, when a, an ethics official at the State Department said, you want to do what? You want whose family member to be in the room? I'm sorry, what now? Um, which actually I think is a, it's a really great example of, you know, an ordinary person. And whenever a cabinet secretary is is really engaged in unethical conduct, you know, just, just some ordinary government employee saying, hey, guys, this doesn't seem right to me. Uh, this doesn't seem ethical to me. And actually the ability of, of people who raise concerns to, um, to be taken seriously uh, uh, in government. Anyway, I would urge all readers to to read this story, to think about it, um, and to think about sort of the larger implications about uh, the era in which we are living in, in which we really, really cannot or uh, we don't have the bandwidth to pay attention to what is happening at the cabinet level of the federal government on these really, really important issues. Um, and so I would just recommend this article to everybody. All right. Uh, and I recommend that you all 
Go forth. Enjoy the rest of your week because that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy hats, Rational Security Darth Vader helmets at <laughs> helmet store lawfare slash are we doing that? No, Dar- we should. We, <laughs> we should, really should have like a. We should have a special lawfare rational security lightsaber. <laughs> that would be really good. That'd be really good. You could buy it at where again, Ben? The Lawfare Store. Dot com. Com. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download or subscribe to the podcast, please remember to leave us a nice rating and review. We really appreciate reading your comments and it helps others find the podcast as well. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his cover of a modern classic, which he dedicated to his attorney general, Bill Barr, You Are the Wind Beneath My Wings. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that old washed up number. <laughs> you know who's not washed up, you guys? Sophia Yam. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes. That's washed up psycho Tamara Kaufman Wittes. <laughs> yeah, indeed. All my washed up psychos. Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. I'm Shane Harris, still washed up. And psycho. Talk to you later. Bye bye. 